Let us pray. May the words of my lips and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. These days, it can often feel like we're living under a bit of a microscope. From security cameras in public places to everyone's camera on their cell phone, you never know when your private moment might be captured for others to see. When it's our our high points, our, our happy moments, well, maybe we don't mind so much. Though if somebody recorded me in my basement last night after Notre Dame's win, that probably would not have been good. (laughs) But when our lows are captured, those moments we wish people didn't see, well, that's a bit of a different story, isn't it? Perhaps we actually can relate to the Apostle Peter in a way that previous generations couldn't. You see, throughout the New Testament, Peter puts his life on full display. We see some incredible highs, like when he declares that Jesus is the Son of God. And we see some very low lows, like our reading this morning. What might it feel like to have the lowest moment of your life displayed, not just for those in your contemporary society to see, but also for untold numbers of future generations to read about. That makes me feel pretty uncomfortable, if I'm honest. And yet here is Peter for all of us to see. Is it to embarrass him? Is it to make him look silly? Well, we actually know that Peter was one of, if not the main source for Mark's writing. And so we have these stories because Peter told him so that they could be recorded. Peter gives us these stories as a gift. And in our passage today, his story shows us some of the pitfalls that even faithful people can fall into. This morning, we're going to look at three different pitfalls that this account reveals. The first is the pitfall of self-justification. Let's take a look at the first part of our reading from this morning. Verse 22, or sorry, verse 27, Jesus tells his disciples that every one of them will fall away from him. It's something the scriptures itself attested to. Jesus is ascribing the words of Zechariah 13 to himself and what is about to happen Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And the response to this, first and most prominently from Peter, is that there's no way that will happen. Even though they all fall away, Peter says, I will not, even if it means death. Peter is putting himself in opposition to the words of Jesus and the words of the prophecy of Zechariah. It is a posture of self-justification, of a heart that says, I can do it. I can do the impossible. Why? Because I'm me. Peter says, sure, all these other guys, they might fall away, but I could never. I'm Peter. I'm the rock. 
I would never fall away. When we put ourselves in opposition to God's word, it tends not to go well for us, does it? And there is perhaps no more dangerous place for a Christian to be than when we utter the phrase, I would never. I would never steal. I would never speak poorly about someone behind their back. I would never take advantage of someone. I would never gain intentionally from someone else's loss. I would never do such a thing. I would never. I would never fall away from you, Jesus. I would never deny you. And yet here is Peter doing that very thing. And the list of Christians who have fallen since is a long one. Romans 7, Paul writes, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. That is the reality of living as one redeemed, justified by Christ, but not yet sanctified. Still capable of the worst kinds of sin. Or perhaps we could use the words of Bishop Ryle. There is no degree of sin into which the greatest saint may not run if not upheld by the grace of God. There is no more dangerous place for the Christian to be than when we utter the phrase, I would never. Because we should know better. But we stumble into the pitfall of self-justification, assuming that we can do enough, that we can be good enough, that we can be better than everyone else. That we would never commit the sort of sin that all you people do. And that actually brings us to our second pitfall. It is a close relative of the first. It is the pitfall of spiritual arrogance. Spiritual pride. Now, Peter and the disciples certainly exhibit this in their bold display in the upper room. I would never leave you, Jesus. How easy it is to make such a declaration in the comfort of a warm private room filled with those who agree with you. But to see this pitfall more clearly, I'd actually like to turn our attention to a different group. And that is the high priests and those who sought to kill Jesus. We are told that Jesus was brought before the council and false witness after false witness was brought in to try and trap him. And it culminates in the high priest himself standing up and asking Jesus point blank, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And to be clear, when he says son of the blessed, blessed was a way of saying God. A Jew of his day would never use the name of God and so they would use a different word to get you there. He's asking Jesus, are you the son of God? It's a question I wish more and more people would ask of Jesus. But what we see from this asking is actually the problem of spiritual arrogance and pride. 
Because often people ask this sort of question not with a desire to learn, to actually have it answered truthfully, but to confirm what it is we already believe. The high priest asked Jesus the question of the ages, the question that changes the course of history, and Jesus declares, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. It is a statement that confirms his divinity. Seated at the right hand of power of God, coming with the clouds of heaven. These are images of the divine. It is a direct answer to his question, and it should lead us to worship and praise Jesus. But instead, the high priest yells blasphemy. Because he's already decided this couldn't possibly be true. In his pride, he already knows the answer. It doesn't matter what Jesus says. He can't convince him of this. He already knows the answer. And it couldn't possibly that Jesus be that Jesus is who he says he is. His spiritual pride has blinded him. God himself, come in the flesh, is standing right in front of him but he can't see him for who he is. It's what spiritual pride does. Self-justification says, I can do it on my own. Spiritual pride says, I already know all the answers. And so I don't need you, Jesus. Not really, because I got the answers. I'm good. And it is something we Christians can fall into so easily. When we ask about a a difficult topic, say like, I don't know, predestination. That's an easy one, right? No problems there. Are we asking to hear another Christian perspective or do we just want to confirm what we already know? What does this or that denomination believe about baptism? Are you asking because you actually want to know the answer or so that you can feel all high and mighty when they get the answer wrong? Are you open to learning? Or are you looking to do some much needed correcting in the other person? And we even do it with the Bible. Someone I know pretty well. <laughs> I was having a conversation with him and he, he's claimed to be a believer his entire life. And he told me once that he actually didn't read the Bible anymore. Because he read it once. And he learned everything he could possibly gain from it. One reading of God's word. He had learned it all. Imagine the pride of that statement. How you must view your spiritual state if you think you can crack open a Bible, read it cover to cover once, and you're good. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, James tells us. I think he may have skipped that verse. Spiritual pride is a killer, friends. It is an absolute killer. And it's a pitfall that is so easy for us to fall into. And often we don't even realize it. Because in our pride, we think we've been doing it right all along. Now to be clear, there are absolutely things that we can say with complete assurance. Like that Jesus is the Son of God. 
that he did come to pay the penalty for sin and reconcile sinful humanity with our gracious, loving, heavenly Father. We can say that. That is absolutely sure. But in knowing that, we don't follow Jesus out of pride, assuming we know all there is to know, but pursue him with a humble heart, willing to learn and grow and be corrected. We ask the Holy Spirit to keep us teachable, to open our eyes when we have fallen into this pitfall. It is so easy. It is for me. So easy to fall into pride. That's why one of my favorite prayers is a really short and simple one. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Right to the heart. My need and the solution. Right there. One more pitfall today. It's the pitfall of fear. And isn't that what we're seeking to mask with our self-justifying hearts and spiritual pride? Fear. Let's turn back to Peter. Servant girl approaches him and makes really what shouldn't be a threatening statement. You were with him, weren't you? We have no reason to believe that there's malice in it. For all we know, she could have been asking because she might wonder what Jesus was actually like. Is what this high priest is saying genuinely true about him or not? And Peter, strong, confident, bold Peter, he acts out of fear. He denies Jesus and he walks away as fast as his legs will take him. He leaves the courtyard and he heads for the exit to the gateway where the second denial comes and then the third. Did you notice that little inclusion there, that subtle little inclusion of Mark's in the reading? With each denial, Peter walks further and further away from where Jesus is being held. He begins by following him from a distance, verse 54 tells us. And then he leaves the courtyard and he heads for the exit when he thinks the heat is getting a little too warm. He denies Jesus, not just with his words, but with his body, literally separating himself, putting more and more distance between him and his master. That is what fear does. We become afraid of what following Jesus might mean. What, what might it cost us? <clears throat> Will it mean having people question me? Will it mean having views that stand opposed to common cultural beliefs? Will it mean challenging political beliefs of all sides? Will it mean losing friends? Will it mean loved ones not supporting me? We become afraid, and as the fear rises, it's our natural tendency to separate ourselves from Jesus. I've lived this out myself. I'm not immune to this. For most of my life, basically all of my friendships and relationships have been with non-Christians. I know what it feels like to sit in a group of people who love making fun of religious people. Who think the very idea that there's a God is crazy. 
And for a long time, when it would happen, I would shrink back. I would succumb to my fear. I wanted to be liked. I didn't want to get into fights. And so I'd either say nothing or I'd soften. Right? That's the other side of that. Right? Oh, yes, yes. There are those Christians who believe that. But I'm not like those Christians. Not me, no. As I became more outspoken about my faith and didn't shrink back about potentially unpopular beliefs, it did make for some uncomfortable conversations. But the remarkable thing was, I also would have people come up to me in private and say, you actually believe all that stuff, huh? Why? And maybe they didn't come with the most open heart, but they asked the question. And we got to have a conversation. I don't know what the Lord will do with those conversations, but they happened. I get fear. I get that pitfall. I understand it more than I care to admit. But when we shrink back, everyone loses. No one is brought closer to Christ that way. So why are we talking about this stuff this morning? Why are we looking at pitfalls of faith in this passage? Is it just a warning? Don't you be like Peter. Don't be afraid. Be bold. Be courageous. Be strong. No. You see, that just leads to that self-justifying heart that we talked about before. Or to utter despair when we realize that, guess what? I'm not doing that. No, it's to show us where the gospel is in this passage. To show us our need for grace. These pitfalls often come because we feel like Peter by the fireside, alone. No one to turn to. And so in fear we shrink. Or from a place of pride we puff out our chest. I'll defend myself, I got this. I thought a lot about young Christians this week as I was preparing this. Perhaps because much of what I experienced of fear and of faith came when I was Younger, And though Christianity was dwindling in influence at that time, it was still much more socially acceptable than it is now. I can't imagine what it's like being a faithful Christian in high school or college these days. I really can't. I can imagine it feels pretty lonely, though. And that loneliness can lead us to some bad places and some bad decisions. The truth is, if you're a Christian today, you are in a far better place than Peter was. Because you're never alone. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit to guide us and strengthen us and comfort us. We have God with us if we are in Christ. And not just that, but we have the church We, as a family of believers, we are meant to support one another, to pray for one another, to stand with one another, and so we are never alone. And that is true whether you are one or 100. And just so you know, if you ever do feel alone in your faith, you can call me, you can text me, email me, whatever. Call one another. We can pray for each other. 
There are no questions off limits to a seeking heart. There are no fears too big to confess and ask for help with. If you are in Christ, you have God with you and you have a family to support you. No matter your age, no matter how long you've been a Christian for, even if you're not yet a Christian, come with your questions. Come looking for that comfort. We're in this together. And we're in this with our God. The Holy Spirit comforts and strengthens us in our fears. He also does something we like a little less. He convicts us when that's what we need. Jesus told Peter that before the rooster crows twice, Peter would deny him. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. Peter hears the rooster, and our passage ends with, and he broke down and wept. And it is a gift that he did. It is a gift. Because Peter needed to be broken so that he could be rebuilt. If one is to be remade in the image of Christ, that is what we need. Jesus doesn't break us down to leave us as a pile of spiritual rubble, but to restore us. He didn't have to tell Peter what would happen. He didn't have to put words in Peter's mouth, because, but because things happened the way that they did, Peter's self-justifying heart and his spiritual pride are broken. The rooster's crow is the sound of his pride being shattered, and there is nothing better for him. Because without that being broken, he never would have truly understood his need. That is why Jesus brings us low. Not so that we can be lost, but so that we can see that we can't save ourselves, that we need Jesus, that we need open hearts to genuinely seek him. Because when that happens, he restores us. In John's gospel, we have this beautiful scene of Jesus taking Peter aside and reinstating him. Restoring the relationship that Peter had impaired by saying once again, follow me. And Peter, who had denied him, now confesses, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Peter's denial was his spiritual rock bottom that he needed to hit so that Jesus could take his hand and pick him back up again. It's what Jesus does. He gives grace to those he humbles. I found these words from Bishop Ryle comforting. I hope you will as well. He wrote, Let us take comfort in the thought that the Lord Jesus does not throw off his believing people because of failures and imperfections. He knows what they are. It is his glory to pass over the transgressions of his people and to cover their many sins. He knew what they were before conversion, wicked, guilty, and defiled. Yet he loved them. He knows what they will be after conversion, weak, erring, and frail. Yet he loves them. He has undertaken to save them, notwithstanding all their shortcomings. And what he has undertaken, he will perform.
Jesus says it, it happens. Guaranteed, he can take it to the bank every time. Let us take comfort, friends. He loves you. There's no need for pride or fear or self-justifying. He loves you. He loves you. And it will mean comfort sometimes and conviction at others. But he loves us and he is with us and he will accomplish what he purposes for us and for his church. It's a guarantee. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the love that you have poured out upon us in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has not cast us off in our sin, but that he restores us, he redeems us, and reconciles us to you. We pray, Lord, that whether it is comfort that we need this day or conviction, that you would bring exactly what we need and the method that we need it. We thank you, Father, that you know what that is far better than we do and that we can trust that as a good and loving Father, you will do your will in us, working in us what is well-pleasing to you. And so we pray, Father, that you would strengthen us, comfort us, convict us, and love us as only you can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.